This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Octavia Zapala, and this is episode 6 of Missing Alyssa. If this is the first time you listen to this podcast, I strongly suggest starting from the beginning. I've been fascinated by cold cases, and in particular those involving a missing person, since I was a child. There is something so profoundly mysterious about somebody just vanishing. So many times I've wished that I could have time-traveled to the time and location where the person disappeared to see what really happened to them at that very last moment. I get excited when I hear about a cold case being resolved. But most of the time, this happens as a result of DNA comparisons or other physical evidence that gets re-examined with the help of advanced forensic technologies. In this case, there is no physical evidence. There is no body, no crime scene, and nobody can even know for certain that a crime occurred. In 2008, Two homes were searched and analyzed. The home Alyssa last lived in and the one Mike and Sarah had been living since. Luminol was used to detect any bodily fluids on the ground, cadaver dogs were brought in, and both backyards were scrutinized. None of this has yielded any physical evidence relating to a murder. There is, however, a large amount of information that points in that direction. Missing person cases generally are cases where we have a lack of evidence. We don't have a body. Oftentimes we don't have a scene. Uh, we usually don't have witnesses. So most missing person cases are circumstantial cases. We're building little pieces to show the picture that this person, one, is deceased, and two, that they were murdered. So when you say physical evidence, yeah, I don't have a bloody scene or anything like that. Uh, I have great deal of circumstantial evidence. Like all cold cases, this one is frustrating. Just knowing that if it had been treated as a case of foul play, or at least actively investigated, we could have so much more information available now. There could be video surveillance and receipts that could have proven what Alyssa's stepfather was doing during the hours she went missing. There would be complete phone records from that day, providing a more detailed timeline. The school attendance sheet would have shown what time Alyssa left, and her friends and teachers could have remembered more details about that last day, and about the days leading to her disappearance. Also, the car Mike owned at the time could have been searched. But as Detective Summershoe pointed out, we can play the guessing game all we want, wondering what we could, should, or would have. But at the end of the day, we have to work with what we have. If you think about it, it seems justified that police initially regarded this as a regular runaway case. You have a stepfather who produces a runaway letter right away, and a 17-year-old who by all accounts hated her stepfather. And when I say by all accounts, I mean this has been said by friends, neighbors, relatives, dozens of people who knew Alyssa. Most of these people, in fact, initially expressed relief that Alyssa had ran away. Over the phone, Alyssa's childhood friend Katie Rothweiler expresses what others have told police as well. 
my childhood, growing up with Alyssa, my parents had a lot of run-ins with Mike Turney. Anytime they dropped me off to go to Alyssa's house, we would corner them and talk to them about conspiracy theories for an hour. And so when she disappeared, we all were kind of relieved that she had gotten away from him, not thinking about the fact that he might actually have been the cause of her disappearance at the time. You know, it kind of fit the bill for a runaway case. And at that point, I I honestly would not have been surprised if she had run away. Her father had contacted me a couple days after maybe she had disappeared. And he told me that she had run away. And honestly, my first thought was, thank God <laughs> um, that she got out of his house. It seems crazy now to both me and my parents that we didn't really think twice about the fact that that was the case. What's not normal, in my opinion, is that months, even years after the 17-year-old girl vanishes, nobody followed up with the case. That nobody questioned Mike Turney's version of events until after the Florida confession. How can this case have been overlooked for so long? Let's have a look at some statistics for a second. Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the United States. There are about seven to 8,000 missing person reports a year the majority of which are juveniles. Most of these juveniles return home within weeks. It's very rare for a runaway juvenile case to be open longer than one year. There are currently only 15 long-term missing juvenile cases in this city, including Alyssa. So it couldn't have been overlooked that easily. The way this case was resuscitated was actually nothing short of miraculous. Two different people put the bug in the ear of investigators. First, as I explained in the beginning, the high-profile false confession of convicted murderer Thomas Heimer got the attention of the FBI. And then another man came forward. It was early 2008, before Phoenix detectives had interviewed any of Alyssa's friends and family. A friend of Mike's son, we'll call him Rob, had a falling out with Mike's son. Rob decides to come clean about what he knows. Investigators become interested in what Rob had to say and agreed to interview him. Rob says that he and Mike's son had often discussed Alyssa's disappearance and that Mike's son had told him that he believed Mike killed Alyssa because he had been abusing her and she was threatening to expose him. Rob also said that he believed he might have seen some explosives at Mike's house. It's possible this is when detectives started suspecting Michael Turney. At that point, they finally had a direct lead. Without these two confessions, there might not have been a hypothesis of crime at all. After those two people came forward, a very large effort has been made to find Alyssa. An entire task force was formed, which included the Phoenix Police Department, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and the FBI. Police conducted an enormous amount of interviews. They left no stone unturned. And so much circumstantial evidence has been collected. But will this be enough to close the case? Will there ever be a trial? Will someone be held responsible for this disappearance? Will Alyssa ever be found? I'll get back to that soon.
Reading through police records, I came across the depositions of two men in Alyssa's life that I found very moving. The first one is Alyssa's boyfriend's police interview from 2008. John explains that Alyssa was his first real girlfriend. They met at the beginning of their junior year, when they were both in the same American history study group. They dated until the very last day of school, which is the day she disappeared. That last day, he first saw her at 7 a.m. on the school grounds just before classes started. He says she seemed chipper. Then they saw each other a few times in passing between classes. His last class was woodshop. Alyssa popped her head into his classroom and told him that her dad was taking her out of school early and that she would talk to him later. She seemed normal to him. He never saw her again. Right after school, John went home. He changed his clothes before going to his job at U-Haul, where his shift began at 2.30 p.m. At 11 p.m., he got off work, checked his phone, and saw a voicemail from Alyssa's stepfather. When he learned Alyssa was missing, he became really worried and said he drove around all night looking for her. Finally, he returned home at 3 a.m. Mike initially told John that Alyssa had ran away to California. After she went missing, Mike became distant with John and never confronted him to see if he might know where Alyssa went. John initially believed what Mike said about Alyssa heading off to California. He was heartbroken. He says that if Alyssa hadn't disappeared, he thought they would have stayed together. They had talked about a future together and had hopes of starting a family one day. John was so devastated that he didn't date anyone for a long time after that. His best friend, Jesus, confirms that John was never the same after Alyssa disappeared. The second person is Alyssa's biological father, Steven Stram. Steve had little or no contact with Alyssa, and he was basically a stranger to her. I had always wondered why he wasn't involved in Alyssa's life. Did he not care about her? Can one's anger towards their ex-wife overshadow the love for their child? But when I read what he told police, I started to piece some things together. Steve said that after the breakup with his wife, he continued to see Alyssa on a regular basis until she was about two and a half. One day he went to pick up his child at the scheduled time and saw Mike and Barbara walking down the driveway. They announced that they would be rescinding his visitation rights from that point on. Steve was angry and felt hopeless because after consulting with an attorney about his options, he didn't feel that he had the funds to pursue shared custody. He was repeatedly denied visitation until one day he had a physical confrontation with Mike Turney. After that, Steve made no other attempt to see or speak with Alyssa again. Eventually, he remarried and now lives out of state. Steve claims to have continued paying child support for a while. One day, he inquired to find out if he still needed to pay and was told that he did not because Alyssa had been adopted by Mike Turney. Steve had no idea how Mike was able to adopt his child without his knowledge. He felt cheated since he never gave consent for the adoption. He and his current wife had been planning to get in touch with Alyssa when she reached majority. Alyssa never had a dependable female role model to look up to and to guide her after her mom died. She also had a great deal of problems at home. Despite this, everyone describes her as a happy person. 
People close to her have referred to her as being many things. She has been called lovable, honest, upfront, blunt, and as having a strong personality. She was carefree, laid back, hyper, and a great employee who never missed a shift. She made friends easily and was well-liked by everyone. She was also described as bubbly and mischievous. In fact, most of Sarah's memories of her bring up both her playful and her caring side. Um, there was one time I remember my brother's partner's mother. They were very fancy. We, we, this is the first time we were being exposed to money, if you will. Um, and the, the mother had taken me and Alyssa dress shopping because we were going to go see the Nutcracker. So we bought these really pretty dresses. We'd never done that before. We were going to go see the Nutcracker. I've never seen anything. Um, and Alyssa was doing my hair. She was braiding it really pretty. And I had lice. Um, and I couldn't go to the Nutcracker. And she would not stop making fun of me. Um, so, <laughs> so it was just the funniest thing um, now. I was totally devastated then. Um, but that was just, I mean, just her, you know, us picking out the dresses and her doing my nails and then doing my hair. And then, of course, I have lice, right? Because that's just the way the world works. Another really favorite one of mine is our famous trampoline story, um, which um, my father was asleep and Alyssa and I were jumping off the roof onto the trampoline. I was a little afraid. Um, she had promised me she would not double bounce me off of the trampoline if I jumped off the roof. And I believed her because I was foolish. And I jumped on the trampoline. She double bounced me off. I hit the ladder and I was crying so hard. But I remember the best part was it knocked the wind out of me and I hear creak, creak, creak on the trampoline. She goes, Sarah. Like I'd never heard so much concern in her voice and I just bust out crying. And then she's like, shut up, dad's gonna hear you. We're gonna get in trouble, shut up. Several people said Alyssa was physically strong, a bit of a tomboy. She dressed in baggy pants and adopted a skater look. She listened to Eminem and Linkin Park. She did normal things that kids her age do. Some people didn't believe that Alyssa had any plans for the future saying that she was always very spontaneous and focused in the moment. Some believe she probably wouldn't have attended college, that instead she would have likely had children early. Alyssa always talked about how much she loved children. She took a preschool class and she noted some baby names in her notebook. Perhaps she was hoping to give her kids everything that she was denied in her childhood such as love, stability, and protection from abuse. Most agree that the most important things in her life at the time she went missing were her friends and her boyfriend. But a great deal of people also said that Alyssa loved her sister Sarah, and that she was affectionate with all of her siblings. Everyone seems to agree that the only stressor in Alyssa's life seemed to be the tension between her and her stepfather. Some say that sometimes she was sad because of the situation, but that she was very good at hiding her feelings. So what happened to Alyssa? When a person goes missing, the most significant clues can be found in the hours leading up to the disappearance. Let's talk about the events of Alyssa's last day once again. It was May 17, 2001. And Alyssa's day, last day was a half day, so she would have been getting out early anyway. So Mike took her out even earlier than she would have. Sarah, 
uh, it was the last day of school for her, so they had a, a field trip to a water theme park. So she was going to go there, and then Mike was supposed to pick her up um, and then uh, bring her home. He didn't show up for the, the scheduled time to pick her up. She actually goes home with a friend, and she said it was probably close to sunset when Mike picked her up, which, again, at May, it's probably around 7.30, you know, 7, 7.30. So um, we have a pretty long time frame where we don't know what is actually going on at that house. According to Mike... When he was having lunch with Alyssa, the two of them started talking about summer plans, and the conversation got heated. She told him that she wanted more freedom during the summer, to not be accountable for how she was going to spend her time. And he said that wasn't going to happen. He was also angry at her because, he claims, she had been giving out her cell phone number to random guys she met at Jack in the Box. After the argument, Alyssa stomped off towards her bedroom. The last time he saw her, she was walking away from him down the hallway, her hair flying behind her. He then says he goes shopping and to run some errands to let her cool down. Looking at the phone records from the house, you get a very rough timeline for that day. The last outgoing call from the house is at 8.30 a.m., meaning someone was home until at least that time. The calls resume again at 5.30 p.m., so there is a nine-hour gap during which nobody knows what happened. I don't know, you know how much shopping Mike was doing. It would take nine hours. Some calls were made between 5.30 and 6.30, and then there is another gap between 6.30 and 8 p.m., which might be when Sarah was getting picked up by Mike. When Mike and Sarah returned home to find Alyssa gone, they remembered seeing the contents of her backpack being dumped all over the floor of her room. But the only thing that was gone for sure along with Alyssa was the backpack itself. No other clothes or belongings seemed to be missing as far as her sister could tell. One of Alyssa's close friends from high school gave a detailed account of what Alyssa had been wearing that day. She said Alyssa had on a white shiny tank top that crossed in the back, gray or blue shorts, and gray skater shoes. Her backpack was black with a cross design embroidered on it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In the days immediately after Alyssa Turney disappeared, Mike gave different people different versions of what had happened. He told some that Alyssa went to school that morning and that he never saw her again. He told others that Alyssa met a guy at Jack in the Box, Paul, and she went with him to California. It was allegedly Chris, Alyssa's colleague at Jack in the Box, that told Mike that. But Mike tells Chris that Alyssa had likely been kidnapped. Other people actually remember Mike saying that Alyssa went to California with a guy named Chris. One family friend clearly remembers Mike saying Alyssa went to see a movie at Harkins Theater. He added she had a backpack with her. He says he asked her what was inside, and she replied she had packed popcorn and candy for the movie. When Mike went to pick her up after the movie, he says she was gone and never returned home. 
He told one person that Alyssa ran away to Sacramento to live with her biological father, Steve Stram. And of course, he told many others, including the officer that took the original missing person report, that Alyssa had ran away to California to her aunt's house. Most of Alyssa's friends said that she never talked about running away and never mentioned knowing anyone in California. But they all agree that if Alyssa were to run away, she would not have left a note for her dad or called him of all people. And she definitely would not have left a mean-spirited note to Sarah. Some say that however much she hated being in that house, part of the reason for her staying was because she didn't want to leave her younger sister alone with Michael Turney. Alyssa was particularly close to her brother, John, and most agree that she would have never left without telling him. Alyssa's boyfriend, also named John, believes that Alyssa would have never left without telling him either. He says she never talked about running away, but that she was looking forward to turning 18 so that she could get away from her stepfather. One girlfriend could have sworn that if Alyssa was planning on running away, she would have certainly asked her to go with her. Finally, most people agree that Alyssa wasn't sophisticated enough or worldly enough to stay hidden for any length of time and certainly not to establish a new identity. She would not have been able to survive all by herself at all. Alyssa had lots of friends. She got along with everyone. She didn't have any enemies. She was happy at work and at school. She was a typical American teenager. The way she disappeared was not typical, on the other hand. She left her favorite clothes behind, her makeup, her jewelry, her hairbrush, her cell phone was left in her room, and all of her savings sat in the bank. Her friends and her boyfriend meant the world to her, and yet she never contacted any of them. She had just gone to prom, and the following week would have been graduation. Perhaps her trail didn't end in California, but very close to home. Everyone I spoke to, and everyone who was interviewed by police, now believes that she is no longer alive. Their initial relief that she had left that house turned into anguish when she never reached out to the people she loved the most. We've pretty much settled ourselves into the fact that my niece is not alive, we know that. Says Alyssa's Aunt we Teresa. All of us believe that Mike has a big, big part in her disappearance, and more so than we may ever know. But, you know, they asked me point blank that I believe that Michael did something to Alyssa. Absolutely. I absolutely believe it. At this point, I think the most logical conclusion is that my father did something to her, killed her, buried her somewhere. This is Sarah speaking. But I have to keep hope alive. I, I have, like, there has to be some type of glimmer of hope in my, the back of my mind, um, because or else I feel guilty. There's a lot of guilt in giving up that hope. Um, because, one, I don't think she would ever give up on me in a million years. She probably would have beaten the answer out of my dad by now in, in a way that I could never. I feel guilty a lot of ways. This is Michael's nephew, David. Because I didn't do anything to help that girl, you know, and I have to live with that. I do, you know, and it really sucks because I didn't step up like I should have. And now this girl's dead. I really don't have a lot of hope that she is still here. I definitely think that there was some foul play in her disappearance. This is Katie, by the way. But now, I mean, my 
my gut feeling and my true belief is that she's probably had something to do with her disappearance and I think that that was kind of a cover-up. Finally, I asked Detective Summershoe the question. Uh, where do you think Alyssa is today? This is classified a missing person case, but I, I think it is a homicide. I don't think Alyssa's alive. There is a lot of facts that support her no longer being alive. Even Mike Turney thinks Alyssa's dead. I wonder if that's why he closed her bank account in October of 2001, just five months after she disappeared. If he hoped, like he said numerous times, she would have come back home to him. Would he have closed her account and transferred the balance to his younger daughter? He says he blames himself for being too strict with her, causing her to leave. During his ABC News interview, he admits, Alyssa was ready to leave home, ready to fly, and I didn't think she was ready. I didn't want her to. I wanted her to stay. But at the same time, he says the union kidnapped her and that he blames himself for having gotten involved in risky business. Alyssa's aunt Teresa speculates a little further. You know, knowing Mike the way I do is that, first of all, he's very um, impulsive with his anger. I don't know if there was an intention um, the day he picked her up from school. I don't know if things just got out of control and out of hand and it was something that impulsively happened or if Michael had a plan. Because Michael was a planner and very seldom left anything to chance. To be honest with you, ma'am, I don't even know if Alyssa went home that day. There's no videotape to prove it. There is no surveillance tape to prove that Alyssa was in that house that day. Nothing. Some noted that Alyssa had been more and more frightened in the months leading to her disappearance. She told two different friends that she was scared that her stepfather was going to kill her. Reading through police records, I found that half a dozen women reported being scared of Mike Turney. A few of them were even reticent to speak to police because of fear of retaliation. One woman who was friends with Barbara before she died said that she had once had a minor disagreement with Mike and that after that, she felt like he was stalking her. He would just show up places where she was. She described Mike as intimidating, forceful, and evil. One girl, who was very close to the family, said that Mike liked things his way, and when they weren't, he'd stop at nothing to get them his way. Several girls have called him creepy. I've read several reports where women say Mike has tried to romance them and acted inappropriate, making them feel uncomfortable. Some of these are neighborhood babysitters, friends of his late wife, or friends of Mike's older children. For example, one girl, friends with one of Mike's sons, was paid by Mike to drive him up to Springerville, where he had to visit family. He claimed to have been exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam as a reason for his not being able to drive alone. Agent Orange is a herbicide used by the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. But it doesn't really matter, because as you know, Michael Turney was never in Vietnam. Anyway, when the two stopped in a motel for the night, Mike allegedly told the young woman there was only one room left in the motel. 
so that they had to share. The young woman later spoke to reception and obtained a separate room without any difficulty. Another friend reported that she once saw Mike get in a rage because Alyssa flirted with a boy. She saw Mike slapping and throwing Alyssa against the wall. There is a lot of fear about Michael Turney having been released. Some people that went on record for 2020 regret having done so, which is why I'm not making their names. Out of all of Alyssa's friends, only Katie was willing to speak to me. As for all the other people, I found out what their thoughts were through police records. Nobody wants this case solved more than Sarah does. She is the person who is suffering the most about all this. She lost her mother when she was four, her sister when she was 12, and then her father when she was 19 and he was put into jail. Yeah, it's, it's been a really crazy ride. Um, but I'm, I'm really thankful for my childhood. It's made me very strong. I wouldn't necessarily describe it as traumatic or anything like that, but it, it wasn't the best childhood. They moved a lot and lived in poverty for some time. But she says that's pretty standard for the neighborhood they lived in. Now, as an adult, aside from one of her older brothers that she's very close to, Sarah doesn't have any family left. If she loses a job, for instance, there is no one to fall back on. I don't have that safety net, so I have to create it for myself. So I'm always looking for extra forms of income, extra savings, pay off my house as soon as I can. And then there's her emotional state. There's days where I'm just like so sad about my dad or so confused or just I get triggered and I'm just, I'm just done for the day. Like I'm useless to everybody. It's so unique that I don't know that anybody could understand it, if that makes sense. When Mike got arrested on the explosives charge, she was catapulted into adulthood overnight. Her home was raided without warning, and the police told her that her sister was dead and her father probably killed her. If you followed this case before listening to this podcast, you might remember that up until 2009, Sarah still believed that Alyssa was alive, out there somewhere, living her life. At the time, Sarah was 19. She described herself as naive, and she never imagined her father capable of any wrongdoing. She was supportive of him, and she was present at every single hearing of his bomb case. I didn't know what to think, to be totally honest with you. Um, and a lot of my mind was focused on, I have to be there for my dad. So I don't know if I was totally open to hearing all of the truth at that point. I had family and friends, you know, supporting me, saying, your dad's a great guy. You know, we love him. We've always loved him. He's done all these wonderful things for us. And then you have this other side, especially the internet community, once the TV show came out and it became a little more publicized, that just tell you how it is and what they see. And you have a thousand people saying he's a terrible person. And then you have a handful of really close people that knew him as well saying he's a great person. Um, so I was extremely confused and stuck in the middle. And it, it took me a few years, I think, to separate myself and kind of just see it for what it was never occurred to me. I would have never thought in a million years. She's discussing the suspicion that her father killed Alyssa. Even though I had had um, 
People tell me that before though. I had a friend of Alyssa's and I saw her randomly at a Zia Records and she had said, you know that your father killed her, right? And I was like, whatever, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But that still sticks in my mind even today. Um, but no, before his arrest, I had never thought in a million years he could have done it. And when, at what point did you start to change your mind? Um, it was a little bit after the 2020 show. I had seen some footage on there, um, been given some information through the show that I had never heard before. Things like he took her out of school early that day and the charges of molestation. I had never heard those things before. Um, so it wasn't immediately after the show, but it was slowly as things began to piece together. It was hard. It was really hard. I wasn't totally on board with it at first, but slowly it just made more and more sense to me that it was probably him. And at one point I had asked him flat out, this is what I think, this is what I found, like what is up with that? And he just avoided the question. He um, just dodged and ducked it like he always does. And if my father did it, I don't think he will ever confess. The relationship between Sarah and her dad slowly tapered off over the course of the years. I rarely speak to him, very rarely. Um, it's more emotionally draining than anything. It normally just isn't worth it to speak to him. Um, and I don't have a lot of interest in speaking with him. I don't put a lot of thought into what he says anymore. Um, we just don't have the same relationship. He's not, he's still my father biologically, but he's not the same dad. I don't look up to him anymore. We also talked about Mike's impending release and how she felt about that. I don't know, even though it's been so long, like I'm not ready. I just don't want to deal with it. And I know that, you know, there's going to be some type of emotional guilt. And he he's just so manipulative. And I'm afraid that I'm going to fall back into it. I don't think I will. But, you know, sometimes I get sad and I don't have parents or a lot of family, so. I have a ton of feelings of guilt. Like, I should just shut up and be a good daughter and respect him and believe what he says. Um, but I grew up without parents for the most part, so losing him isn't huge to me. I'd rather stand up for what I believe in and lose him than kind of cower down and wonder if I'm doing the right thing by being loyal to him. And again, I, I think that comes to me being more loyal to Alyssa than anybody else. Because if there's even a chance that he hurt her, I want nothing to do with him. So where is the investigation at now? It seems investigators have all the information they're ever going to get. So what are they waiting for? Mike Turney certainly isn't going to give them anything else. When we started working on the case in 2008, um, as we started to interview people, Mike actually contacted us. Um, and communicate with Detective Anderson, uh, and it was very uh, strained communication. Uh, there was almost immediate hostility from him. He refused to come down to our office for an interview. He's the last person to see Alyssa. He's her stepfather. Um, he has a lot of information, and so we, we wanted to talk to him about that. Mike denies ever being called in for an interview, saying he was more than willing to speak to police about his missing daughter. 
However, a look at police records reveals that there is both a recording and a written email to prove that he has always refused a formal interview. They attempted to speak with him again in 2015. They sent him an email that prompted a six-page response from Michael, who was in prison at the time. The letter started as following. I will not give an interview, exchange mail, or meet in person with any PPD representative, especially Anderson and Summershoe, unless we are live on national TV. He then ends the letter with a proposal. He promises to answer any questions only if the following conditions are met. He wants the interview to take place live on Fox News, and all the guests must be administered polygraphs by independent Canadian operators. Some of the people he wants polygraphed are Detective Anderson, Detective Summershoe, his own family, the National Center for Missing and Exploded Children, ABC News, an ATF agent, Stephen Stram, the forensic psychologist, and the judge in his case. He then wants a chance to interview each of these people. Only in this case, he says, will he ever answer any questions. Well, I mean, when you demand that it be on live TV and that everybody, everybody take a polygraph with Canadian polygraphers, right, right. that is basically saying no. I mean, if, if you're, you know, you might as well ask for Santa Claus to be there too. It's not going to happen, you know. At the time I spoke to Detective Summershoe, a few months before Mike's release, I wanted to know whether there was any plans to charge him with murder. He told me it was an ongoing investigation and that he wasn't at liberty to discuss where they're at exactly. He is classified as an investigative lead in this case. In any missing person case, you have to look at the last person to see the missing person, you know, a person that the missing person would have issues with, and then a person that would benefit from the disappearance of the, the missing person. And the answer to those three questions is Michael Turney. Stuart Summershoe says that if he had to choose just one case to solve, he would choose this one. He wants closure too. This case has haunted him for many years. And since he believes Alyssa was murdered, we spoke about where she could be. If you believe Mike and his, his manifesto, her body is in Desert Center, California. I've been to Desert Center, California. It's a very small, not even a town. It's a stop off the freeway and it's mostly open desert. If her body is out there, I don't even know where you would begin to start looking for it. Mike claims that he, he searched for her body out there. I, I don't know. I would love to talk to him about that. Perhaps in this case, the small kernel of truth in Mike's story is Desert Center, and Alyssa's body is there. They have all the circumstantial evidence they need, but without a body, we have a very small, slim chance of conviction. You can hear me talking with well, Teresa here. There have been lots of convictions without a body. I agree. I agree. And, I, and, and they said, well, you know, if we find a body, then after we've already tried him, we can't retry him. You know what? I'm at the point right now, I don't care. I just do it. Just bring whatever we've got, so at least we tried. Sarah held out hope until the very end, that is, until her father was released from prison, that he was going to be charged with murder, that there was going to be a trial. When Michael Turney was released and nothing at all happened, it became obvious this wouldn't be the case. She felt disappointed and discouraged, 
At the very least, she expected newspapers to cover the event. At the time of his arrest, reporters knocked at her door at all hours of the day and night. But this time around, there was nothing. A couple of days before Mike's release, Detective Summershoe emailed Sarah. He said there has been some restructuring in the missing persons unit and he is no longer assigned the case. The case has been reassigned to a new person entirely. One of the main reasons I chose this case is because I have always felt that the solution is well within reach. I hoped that I could make a difference. Consider this documentary an appeal to the people who hold the power to bring closure to this case, to make a move in that direction. But I would also like to reach out to all of you who are listening to help me find Alyssa, dead or alive. Nobody has ever searched for Alyssa's body. The first place to look would be in the area surrounding Desert Center. If you have any important information pertaining this case, please contact Detective Kimberly Cooper of Phoenix Police Department. If you knew Alyssa and want to share something about her or this case, email me at info at missingalyssa.com. Go to missingalyssa.com for photos, videos, and important new documents I shared about Alyssa. If you sign up, you will also be notified of any update episodes or news in this case. If you enjoyed this series, please leave us a review on iTunes and help spread the word. Creating this podcast wouldn't have been possible without the help of a few key people. Sarah Turney and Detective Summershoe provided me with a wealth of information on the case. Without their help, this documentary likely wouldn't have happened at all. Thank you, Katie Rothweiler, Lynette Ante, and Teresa Ortberg for being so brave and speaking out about what you know. There is a lot of fear surrounding this case, but these three women seemed immune to fear. A special thank you to Michelle Reyes for her amazing artwork and website design, inspired by an initial concept designed by Duncan Halleck, and to Michael Fornwalt for setting the tone for this podcast with his amazing original music. A special thanks goes out to Retha Hill of ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, Doug Mitchell of NPR, Sarah Vantry of KJZZ, and Judge Greg Como for their valuable mentorship and professional advice. This podcast also wouldn't have materialized if it weren't for Raz Yalov, who generously dedicated a great amount of time to the technical aspects of this production and who helped me with some sections of the script whenever I reached a creative impasse. I am so grateful to my husband, Ben Reichert, for his unrelenting support and resourcefulness and for playing the role of Michael Turney, even through some uncomfortable segments. Thank you, Scott Condit, for providing me with the mic that recorded many of the interviews. I also want to thank journalist and true crime author Shanna Hogan for her support in the initial stages of my research. And to my friends and family who supported the concept of this documentary since the beginning, even those who feel like true crime stories are downright creepy. 
This documentary is dedicated to the memory of legendary true crime author Anne Rule, whose work ethics and courage have inspired me for over a decade. If you have helped me and I've forgotten, please forgive me and thank you. Missing Alyssa was produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. Voice acting by Ben Reichert. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.